This episode of Breaking Walls is sponsored by... Are you a maker, doer, dreamer who enjoys their time alone? Who thrives on working solo? Then you might enjoy the Creative Introvert Podcast. Every week, I bring you musings, tips, and guest interviews in order to inspire and motivate my fellow creative innies. Find the show at thecreativeintrovert.com. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 59. My name is James Scully, and a happy belated Flag Day to you if you're listening to this podcast in the United States of America. I bring up Flag Day because this month's topic on Breaking Walls is community. As you can tell from my accent, I'm a New Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn, to be exact, and New York is a city of 9 million hopeful and occasionally frustrated people who live here in this epicenter of energy trying to rise above the hubbub and find out exactly who they are and what they're made of. The older I get, the more I find out about myself, the more the importance of having a strong community is ever-present in my life. On this topic, I was recently given the opportunity to go behind the scenes at the Maggie Flanagan Acting Studio. I sat in on incredibly powerful first and second year sessions and have been fortunate enough to create a relationship with the studio's head, Charlie Sandlin. Today on Breaking Walls, you'll hear audio from these classes and hear what makes this studio tick from Charlie himself. Now before I go on, I just want to say that if this is the first time you're listening to Breaking Walls and would like to subscribe, please do so on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls or by following us on SoundCloud at The Wallbreakers. You can also find these podcasts at thewallbreakers.com. And to check out our line of New York City Unity t-shirts, please go to jamesthewallbreaker.com shop. These typographic t-shirts use the slang names of each of the five boroughs of New York City to help show unity and community, too, amongst New Yorkers near and far. I always say that for those who understand what it's like to be a New Yorker, no explanation is necessary. And those who have no idea what it's like to grow up and live in this ridiculous city, no explanation will ever be possible. By the way, The Wallbreakers, we're on all social media outlets at The Wallbreakers, and we're on the web at thewallbreakers.com. Tucked away around the corner of the Flower District near the site of the former Tin Pan Alley, just east of FIT, is an acting studio that's helping teach students the necessary requirements, not just to be a professional actor, but to be a full-fledged human being in the highest sense of the word. Is there truly any difference between being a good actor and being a real person? Not according to master teacher Maggie Flanagan, for whom the studio is named, and studio head teacher and owner Charlie Sandlin. What makes for a good actor? This studio is teaching students the ability to access their full range of human emotions. Everything we as people experience over the course of our lifetimes or run away from experiencing is taught, absorbed, reworked, retaught, reevaluated, expanded upon, and shared over the course of a grueling and very worthwhile two-year program. 
In 2001, after 18 years as William Esper's most distinguished teacher, both at Rutgers' MFA acting program and in his New York City classroom, Maggie Flanagan opened her own studio in New York City. Four years later in 2005, her former student and friend Charlie Sandlin joined the studio and taught alongside Maggie until 2012, when she retired and Charlie bought the studio, promising to continue the legacy of hands-on acting and teaching. Charlie is tall, lean, olive-complected, with watchful eyes and a curious, kind demeanor that lets you know he's learned to think before speaking. And if he speaks often, it's because he's always also thinking. As Charlie would tell you, a curious mind to him is a stable necessity for any good artist in any kind of medium. When I sat down and opened the conversation with Charlie, one of the first things I wanted to ask him was how he came to find this kind of quiet confidence. Noticed about you, especially now. I've sat through two classes with you. One where you were the lead, and one where you were sort of the second to Maggie. Right. But just the way that you carry yourself, you seem to be a man who's very much in control of himself and of his emotions, or at least you want to project that. You're almost regal. You're a tall, lean man, mm. and you walk. Regal, that's a good I, well, word. and I like that. You walk with a quiet confidence about you, which is a piece of advice that I once got as a young guy mm. about when you learn to lose your insecurities, yeah. you have a quiet confidence about you. you don't need to yeah. project. I tell my humble confidence is what I tell my students that they should have. You know. I recently have been learning about you know, etymology of words and things like that. Mm. And the word Emmanuel essentially means you and I with God as its origin. Right. So to do something manually in some ways means to do it with God. If you're doing, if you're taking the long route, doing it manually, essentially you're doing it with God by the definition of the word. And it would seem to me that this quiet confidence that you have, it's been a hard fought battle for you over your years of putting yourself out there. It's why you're doing this for both a living and a passion. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there are obviously moments that I would never know about that stand out in your mind that have really shaped who you are and brought this kind of man that you are forward. Wow. Well, I mean, a lot of hard work, you know? I mean, I didn't know I was going to be a teacher, an mm -hmm. acting teacher, you know? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> my whole adult life, it was one thing, it was to be an actor, and that's kind of what I was just consumed with, and that's all I ever wanted to be. And, um, you know, when I met Maggie out at Rutgers and I studied out there and, you know, she really had a deep impact on me, you know, as an artist and as an actor. She was very tough and had a very high bar, didn't take any bullshit, you know. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten by on most of my life on my personality, charm, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. You bullshit yeah. you know, your way through things right. and get by, right. right? It didn't fly with her. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I came out of school feeling, oh, I'm a well-trained actor now and I'm going to be ready to pursue this for the rest of my life. And then fast forward six years later and I'm sitting in, I moved back from L.A., sitting in her um, studio learning how to teach. And it wasn't until I got to my mid-30s that I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I wanted. And that was my purpose in life, was to, was to teach. And she is, without a doubt, the most uh, powerful uh, force in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like she, sure. That, whatever, you know, you talk about that quiet confidence. It really, it's just, it's come from... 17 years of working with her and watching her and seeing how she carried herself 
and understanding from her what sh- what makes a good teacher mm-hmm. and the boundaries that you should have. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it also do with setting boundaries. Okay. For them, and so you know, I'm kind of an old school teacher, and Maggie was an old school teacher. Like it's not a democracy when you're trying to learn something, and mm-hmm. so I, I, I keep myself kind of a little bit distant, so I don't get down on their level, and that they don't think of me as a peer. Mm-hmm. But so you are open to their input if they say something that really resonates with you. You're open to hearing that. Oh, as well. of course, of course, of course, absolutely. But um, I would say what you got there in terms of that quiet confidence had to do with just her impact on me because mm-hmm. that's what she has sure and uh you know i probably not only did she train me as an actor but i probably watched jesus maybe seven thousand hours of her teaching mm-hmm. over you know 10 years so like, i absorbed just everything that she ever came out of her mouth we're in one of the studio classrooms at the maggie flanagan studio the space is purposely bare, save for the bleacher-like seating along the back wall, and minimal furniture like chairs, a couple of beds, a makeshift vanity, and a table. In photographs framed along the wall are some of the bards of our time, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, Sammy Davis Jr., Jack Benny, men and women whose sense of timing, either comedically or musically, was unparalleled. It's nearing the end of the first year semester for these students, and today, Maggie will be in the studio with Charlie, critiquing character development pieces. Maggie and Charlie walk in. These are point-of-view exercises with a catch. The point of view of one of the two characters will be decidedly bigoted, sexist, or holding to some point of view that one might consider socially unacceptable if one didn't agree with them. Are you nervous about tonight? Yes. Yeah. What are you nervous about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. So what? So what? You'll learn something. Yeah. And that's the most important thing is to learn something. You're doing something that's much different than you've done before. It's point of view exercise. And some of you will probably catch it, some of you may not. So, you're here to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. <laughs> so, let's see, Stephanie, Miss yeah. Stephanie? Oh, wait, hold on. Yeah, What? Yeah. My name is Stephanie. <laughs> That it is. Good work. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
was Gordon Bernard, and I have a sibling that studies here at Belhaven Middle School. He is 10 years old, and last week he brought to my attention that his teacher, Mr. Roberts, told the class that he was an openly gay man. And when I asked this, my sibling, why were you talking about that in class? He just responded, well, Mr. Roberts is always talking about love and same-sex equality. And he also tells us how much he loves his beautiful husband and the story of how they met. That is a grown man teaching a 10-year-old what same-sex marriage is. Mr. Roberts is supposed to be teaching mathematics to fourth grade students. He is not supposed to be teaching biology. He is not supposed to be teaching history. He is not supposed to be teaching same-sex marriage. And he is most certainly not supposed to be teaching civil rights. The material that he has brought into class is wildly inappropriate. And to share his personal feelings with the minds of fourth grade students is not What are you teaching someone some vile, closed-minded shit? Be sassy just of your friend. I. You are disgusting! You're disgusting! You fucking. You close minded piece of fucking scum! You're scum! You're trying to justify 
of the fucking homosexuality, and it's it is it's it is mind blowing. I don't know. I don't know why you're trying to justify it. You don't know why I'm trying to justify no. it. And it's annoying. Honestly, it's really it's really 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 oh, annoying. No, you're really really fucking annoying me. Are you that? Oh wow, you're that naive. You really you are missing out on life. There's so much love to give in the world. You're sick. You're pathetic. Your dad is my best friend. I, I hope you rot in hell for what you did. Get the fuck out. I don't want to see your face. Get the fuck out. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Okay. Let's talk about this. Listen. If you couldn't stop laughing, because what she said, I'd say that's a good point. Do you understand that? Because that's behavior. Okay? And uh, there was a part of me that didn't fully take her seriously. Do you know? So, not at all. so if you found it funny, I would say I totally know who you were. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. yeah. You want to create behavior. Now you don't know how she's going to respond, you know, but that is a point of view <clears throat> to what she said. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. okay, what are you doing? Uh, my, I just found out that my younger brother, his teacher, is an openly gay male, and I am going to go back to the school board and to the administration at the school board meeting and campaign against termination of his contract. Better if you had a more vivid activity. Yes, that sounds very what one would do in life. But what would you love to do? Mm. Would you like to scare the shit out of him? Maybe show up in like That's show true. up in like like leather or like what what it's actually ah Do you understand that? Yes I do. Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't get intellectual. I'm going to go to the school board. I'm going to do this. Unless you're going to the school board in black leather. Do you, do you know? But I think you could come up with something else that you're going to do in black leather. Okay? that make sense? Mm -hmm. That'd be very, you'd be very alive there. Okay. All right. Do you understand about if you couldn't stop laughing at what she was saying? She's so upset. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no, no, no. What do you do? Uh, her friend came here while she was out, and he's going to be staying with us for a week. And when he opened his suitcase, he went into the shower, and I saw like a bunch of gay pride flags and stuff that he's going to wear in the parade. So I pissed all this stuff and threw it out the window. And then when he came back from the shower, I kicked him out in the street by naked. You picked the ball mm -hmm. and I peed on it because it made me fucking sick. I didn't even want him to have clean stuff because he doesn't even deserve it. But how would you feel about what you did? You should be triumphant at what you did. You should feel on top of the world that you peed on everything. You you know threw it out and you threw him out. Do you understand? That's yes. gotta be really funny to you. <coughs> You don't get shit. You could be angry, but I think it's more interesting if you couldn't stop laughing at what you did. More insane. 
pardon me, what like? Yeah. I wasn't even taking her seriously when she was arguing that, and I probably just would have had to ask myself different questions about how I felt about doing that. How do you feel about what you said? They're just, they're not even human. They're like little, just like little fucking, they're disgusting. They get under my skin, they're annoying. The way that they talk is like, why do you have to go up a higher pitch? Why do I have to be okay with being around it? They disgust, they're disgusting.
And had you had more information, you could have been very good as a But the next time you do it. What do you mean more? Uh, like reasons why? I Emotional reasons why. Okay. okay. So that when it comes up, if you couldn't stop laughing or anger laughing, that we would know immediately what was going on. You don't have to talk about it. It's behavior. This class took place at 6 p.m. The rest of the eighth floor was quiet. I had no knowledge of what this first year class would be working on when I got there. After this particular scene, when the class broke for intermission, I thanked Charlie for his time and allowing me in there. And then I walked to the elevator bank to take the elevator down to the bottom floor of the building by myself. As I walked to the bank and I stopped to press the elevator's down button, I looked down at my hands. They were shaking. That's how hard my adrenaline was pumping through my body at that moment. I literally said, holy fucking shit, out loud. This method of teaching is known as the Meisner method. I asked Charlie Sandlin to explain the differences between the Meisner method and the method acting by Lee Strasberg. Sort of origin, but... Like they come from the same... The group, exact same the person. Group, the, the same theater company. Sure. Yeah. Can you possibly elaborate on some key bullet points as what yeah. separates these two? Well, you know, both of them came out of the group theater. I don't know if you think about the group theater, but the group theater really was kind of the, the closest that we've ever come to kind of a national repertory theater. And it was formed in 1930 by three people, Lee Strasberg, Harold Clorman, and uh, a woman named Cheryl Crawford. And over the course of about 10 years, 11 years, they became a major, major theatrical force. Mm -hmm. There was no off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway in the 1930s. Everything was commercial theater, mm -hmm. you know, so everything we have today, downtown theater, off-off-Broadway, all is a, a byproduct of the group theater. Some of the greatest teachers and the greatest actors of the 20th century, Elia Kazan, you know, the playwright Clifford Odets, Stella Adler, mm -hmm. became one of the great you know, teachers yes. uh, of the art form. Um, and Lee Strasberg and Sandy Meisner. So as the group theater started to unfold, Strasberg created this technique, which now is known as the method, right? Mm -hmm. He uh, created this technique that really has its roots in sense memory, emotional recall, right? So you're kind of going back into your past through sense memory and vivid, uh, just replaying, reliving, um, in order to connect emotionally to what that experience was in order to kind of manipulate yourself emotionally, right, mm -hmm. as the actor. Mm -hmm. And so he became kind of the de facto acting teacher of the, of the group theater. Sure. And uh, had a huge ego and, you know, was very confident. And, I mean, it was producing results. I mean, the, the style of acting really started to change. You know, because Stanislavski had just mm -hmm. kind of emerged in the Moscow Art Theater, and this idea of real organic acting, of really living and breathing the part, 
as opposed to kind of that stylized melodrama that you see in films of the Valentino. Like absolutely, even of the early '40s and the '30s. It wasn't until like Brando kind of broke out with the Actors Studio and was trained by Kazan and mm -hmm. Strasberg. So, what happened was in the mid '30s, Stella Adler ended up going to Paris. Stanislavski was in Paris with the Moscow Art Theater. This was like 1935. So she's over there and um, taking a lot of notes. I mean, spent like six months over there, wrote down everything that Stanislavski was talking about. And his work had started to kind of evolve. He originally w was a, a, a proponent of kind of the sense memory work. And this is where kind of Strasbourg got his technique. But he started to become more fascinated with the imagination and the power of daydreaming. Mm. So his work had kind of changed. So anyway, Stella Adler comes back and she says to Lee, you know, listen, this, he's not talking about this anymore. And what was happening is was a lot of actors in the company didn't really think this was the healthiest way to work, right? Because, you know, I mean, we build scabs, emotional scabs, you know, over things in order to kind of protect ourselves, right? Right. And to kind of peel those off. Like, you know, like, I have to go back to when I was, you know, slapped by my father when I was, you know, sure. 15 and relived that. So a lot of actors were getting a little uncomfortable to work. Anywho, there was a big rift in the group theater. Right. Strasburg was like, fuck you. Stella Adler was like, fuck you. And they didn't really ever speak to each other again. And by 1940, the, the group broke up. So Sandy Meisner starts teaching at the neighborhood playhouse in the mid-30s. And he started with this technique. He created this technique that really has its roots in the imagination. And this is where the biggest difference between Strasberg and Meisner is. Meisner believed that the imagination was a far more creative, far more fertile, and a far healthier place to work from. Because it's infinite? Because it's your imagination. You know, you can go anywhere in your imagination. Sure. And if you think about just us as humans now and our ability to daydream and fantasize, right? If you get lost in a really vivid daydream, You'll have an emotional response. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, the big, the best example of that is the the sexual daydream, right? I mean, you get a very vivid sexual daydream. You're going to have not just an emotional response, but a physical, physical response. response. Absolutely. Because the, the the nervous system doesn't know the difference between fantasy and reality. Is there a difference? Well, I mean, one's fantasy and one's reality, right? But mm. the nervous system doesn't really know the difference, mm. right? So he created this technique that really harnesses the actor's ability to daydream and fantasize to the craft. Mm -hmm. of acting and it, he created this it really the, the first year of the work is like a nine takes nine months to really teach and it has this, this very simple repetition exercise that evolves into um, this very deep very rich very sophisticated improvisational exercise that instills in the actor all the fundamentals of acting so it really has to do you know Meisner to boil it down Meisner had really focused on the imagination Strasberg was all about going back into your past mm -hmm. and um, and Meisner just didn't think that that was healthy and so you know for the next whatever it was he taught until I think 19 late 90s he died in 98 I think 97 mm -hmm. taught the rest of his life you know and of course he's he's legendary it's an incredible technique and so you know the fact that my life now is dedicated to kind of like preserving that and taking it forward to another generation. Because all the, the great teachers that, you know, were around when I was young, Bill Esper and Maggie, uh, you know, there's not that many people that actually teach this work faithfully, authentically, right? And most people kind of like grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that, they water it down. It's like a hodgepodge of stuff. 
but like to really maintain the integrity of his entire technique. Something that became very clear to me throughout the course of these sessions was the importance of giving real human life to these characters. Who are these people? Why do they feel the way they do? Our opposites are people, just like you and I. They want the same things out of life. They want freedom from fear, they want inner peace, but if we all want the same things, what causes the rifts between us? Is it a crisis of ego? I asked Charlie his thoughts on ego and whether or not he felt it was important to have a big ego if you're sense. going well, to be a good teacher. Acting teachers or anybody that teaches any kind of art, they have big egos. So would you say yeah. you, you also belong in that category? I mean, yeah, I guess I would, yeah. I mean, I would have to say yes, but it's born out of, at least now, you know, I'm 47, I'll be 47 in July, mm -hmm. and I've been immersed in the art of teaching now for about 13 years, 14 years. It's born out of confidence. It's, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you know, you got to put in your 10,000 hours. No, absolutely. I, I put in my 10,000 hours, yes. and you know what I mean? So there's a confidence that comes from that. And honestly, you know, when you, you know, you, I step into a classroom and let's say I've got 16 students there coming there on day one that don't know a fucking thing, right? At least they, in some, maybe they think they do, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there's a whole swash of personalities and um, opinions and ideas of what they think this journey is going to be with me. Mm -hmm. So I have to make it very clear without being an asshole that you don't know anything. And you just have to be patient and follow me. And so I guess there does have to, you have to have an, I guess your ego has to be pretty healthy to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. do, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Because it's hard because, you know, you're, te these, you're teaching these kids to be incredibly vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. So not only am I going to push them and hold them to a high standard and not tolerate any bullshit or any fucking unprofessionalism. Do you know what I mean? Like you show up on time, you show up ready to work. Don't argue with me. Be quiet. Listen. You can't be taught if you're trying to explain yourself to me. So just shut the fuck up and let me teach you. Mm -hmm. Right. But then also be supportive and also be nurturing and also let them know that it's okay to fuck up and fail and fall flat on their face. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's a balancing act. And so, I don't know what this has to do with ego per se. It's just, they're not going to follow me if I don't have a certain level of confidence. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And certainty that what I'm saying is right and what I'm saying is something of value. And uh, so it's a fine line between being confident and humbly confident, like we were talking about at the beginning, mm -hmm. but, that, but also you know, tough and um, certain. So I do, I find like I do try to balance it and not come across as an arrogant prick. And, and, I, and, and if I did, I wouldn't be able to, it, just stay, right. it wouldn't stay open. I mean, I couldn't keep a class right. together. Right. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? And yes. so, um, and, I, and I owe a lot of that to Maggie. I owe a lot of that to just watching her teach and being, you know, I was lucky enough, you know, I, to be mentored, you know, not, it's not many people have that experience in life mm -hmm. to have a, a real mentor that shapes them. It's like, I feel very privileged to, to be able to say that, like, I, like I had, a, I, I have a mentor, like somebody who has, you know, really taken me under their wing, mm -hmm. saw something in me, believed in me, you know, and mm -hmm. 
I mean, you know, this is her the studios. It's got her name on it. It's it was hers, mm -hmm. and uh, she trusted it enough in me to, to kind give of, it to, to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I had to buy it. Oh. <laughs> shit! Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, that was business. that was. Oh yeah, the business side of it was uh, was really kind of tough because we were very 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 close, and this was about six years ago when she decided she didn't want to really teach anymore full time, and it was either close the studio down or. Charlie, do you want to buy the studio? And like, it was a no-brainer. Um, but it, it really, I mean, a lot of it has to do with her. And also, I mean, I, I just worked very hard. I just worked very hard. You're going to have to confront, this is for all of you, the insecurity and the embarrassment that you're going to feel when you start to approach points of view that are distasteful to you. You're going to have to work in a very graphic, very vivid place with yourself. There's going to be a part of it that's going to feel, oh God, we got to think this, that I really believe this, or that this is really me. So don't shy away from it. Your job is to ultimately illuminate and justify someone that would believe what they believe. We had a, when I was at Rutgers, there was, they were doing To Kill a Mockingbird. Do you know To Kill a Mockingbird? And the guy that was playing, the racist, he had to really, I mean, in order to do the part fully, he had really had to be sick to understand hate black people. I mean, really hate them and loathe them. And the class that he was in was filled with a good number of African-American people, maybe 10. They were all in the play. And one day in class, he just broke down, fell on the floor, and was just sobbing and saying, I just can't do this to you. I just can't do this. It's so painful. They got very upset with him. They got very upset because they said, it's your job to illuminate what happened to our people. And so you really need to go to the ultimate extreme in order to illuminate that kind of behavior. And if you don't, you're not serving the part. You've got to serve the part. That's your job, is to create the behavior for your character, fully and freely. And as Charlie said, you've got to not, we know that it's not your point of view. Do you, do you understand? We know. That's a character point of view. But you can still feel like people will criticize you. But if you're doing a play or a film, they put it in under the imaginary circumstances. We don't feel, oh, that guy's a bigot outside of No, we put it under the imaginary circumstances. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Come on, Stephen and Christina. This studio, it's more than a studio. It's a family. These students, they go through two years of work learning how to be vulnerable at the highest level. None of it would be possible without the nurturing mentorship of both Charlie and Maggie. I think one of the best parts of the student experience here is Charlie's own acknowledgement that he continues to grow with his students. Life is ever evolving. Charlie also doesn't hold back when explaining to his students what they can expect if they choose this path and become an actor. It seems to me, obviously, that you're willing to acknowledge that the flavor of Kool-Aid might change a little bit on a daily basis, or it might grow, because you're still growing as a man, as a teacher. Still growing as a man, as a teacher, as a human being? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I'm i continually trying to just add to what I can bring into the classroom. You know, I'm like, I read voraciously, and 
continue to kind of try to find new ways to be able to relate to them or talk to them or just as any artist I think you continually work on yourself you continually work on your craft you continually you know you just try to be better I wrote something down the first time I was here and it's the high bar versus the participation award and you're teaching the high bar in my opinion here yeah by that vulnerability vulnerability, competition all these things that for some reason in society we seem to be getting away from from whatever reason it's almost like there's a fear of standing out from the crowd most people are fucking lazy is that really what it is? I think it, so. It does, but does it that like fear creates laziness? You know, if you're afraid, then you just rather sit in the chair. It can be. I just think most people do just enough to get by. There aren't very many people, certainly on this planet, that are really, truly, deeply passionate about anything. Mm-hmm. Right? They just wake up, they get through the day, you know, and they live lives of quiet desperation. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a great way to put it. Right? Yes. So. To be here with these kids, with these, well, they're adults, you know, they're all passionate, deeply passionate about what they want to do with their life. They have a dream and they're really going after it. But most of them have come here, like I've said, uh, doing just enough to get by and to really be pushed, to be told that, you know, listen, your best right now is not good enough. Mm -hmm. It's actually lazy. It's bullshit. Mm -hmm. It's horseshit what you're doing here. You didn't prepare it well. This isn't well thought out. And it's unacceptable. So many of them and my students, for the, that's like the first time that they're really being told oh, in their face, star. listen, you're full of shit. Right. Do you know what I mean? You're full of shit. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, well, what type of actor do you want to be? What type of artist do you want to be? Sure. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so you better just get real with yourself right now or else you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it in, in, in my class. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to be told that. It's hard to, you know, be put up against your laziness. And we all fight it. I mean, shit. We all have to. It's a human thing, right? You want to be lazy sometimes. Please, like, I want to go home. I want to fucking smoke a joint and, you know, make myself an old-fashioned and call it a night when, you know, really, I should read these plays. I should work on a couple of scripts. I should, you know, do this or that. So, like, it's, it's a constant intervention. But you have to instill a work ethic and this is why I say that my actors because most of them uh, most actors I don't think really work hard at all it's the only art form where you do not have to train really fucking train in order to be successful and make a living you can't do that with dance you can't do that with music you can't do it with sports you can't do it uh, with painting or sculpture like you have to train you have to master your instrument right not with acting. If you look like you're peeled off an Abercrombie and Finch catalog and everybody wants to fuck you, right? Mm-hmm. And you have some sort of personality. You go out to L.A., you get a headshot, type up some stupid resume, and you can call yourself an actor. Mm-hmm. And you might actually make money, right? And be successful in terms of what we think of success. You know, you're making money and you're famous, right? Or you're a celebrity. You're not a fucking artist. You know what I mean? Like, you have no artistic integrity. And it's the only art form that where that's possible. You just can't say, oh, I want to be a rock star. I want to be one of the great, you know, guitarists and not spend years right. mastering your instrument. Yeah. So the actors that I teach, the, the people that I really want in my classroom want to be artists. Mm-hmm. I don't think very many actors really want to be artists. Is that because as a society, we're tied to... Uh... 
the uh, allure of money? Yes, absolutely, man. It's pop culture superficiality. Mm -hmm. And Hollywood really has nothing to do with art. They cater to one thing, and that's money. Right. Do you know what I mean? They don't care. Just give me a, give me the the hottest Victoria's Secret mo uh, model. We'll stick her in this stupid fucking film about a superhero, and boom, make our money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's what most actors are kind of are. You know, people that think they want to be actors are drawn to this idea of fame and celebrity. I mean, honestly, it's not going to happen to you. Do you know what I mean? That's like hitting the lottery. It's like threading a needle. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't be basing anything on my desire, my dream to be rich and famous. But a lot of act, young actors, when they come to New York, they come to L.A., and they have this fantasy that that's what it's, that that's what it's about, you know? Mm -hmm. Is there, because this is the struggle that I have, where knowing that I'm an artist deep down and I like a wide variety of things when it comes to art, but needing to pay bills and also mm -hmm. wanting to not always be, am I going to be able to pay my bills this month? Right. Is there a, a way that we can somehow marry these two concepts and tweak it so that even if you're not rich and famous, you wake up every day with a sense of purpose and you can also go eat a steak and not worry that you can't eat breakfast the next day? How do you find that? I don't know, man. I think it's very hard to be an artist in this country. Because they're not respected? We're not respected? Not respected. It's a hard life. You know, art's about the truth. Mm-hmm. People and are afraid of that. It's not always something that people want or interested in, you know. And uh, But an artist certainly an actor, should be consumed with the truth. And uh, it's not fashionable always. And it's hard, you know, you don't have the security, financial security. So like if you're living a life of an artist, you're not doing it because you want to make a lot of money. You're doing it because it, to not do it. Hurts. You know, yes, you know, like Marina, you know Marina Abramovich? Mm -hmm. Incredible performance artist. One of the great performance artists alive. You know, she talks about, you know, it's as important as breath to her, the need to create. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, I tell my students on the first day, if there is anything else you want to do, and I mean anything that excites you, that turns you on, that you think, oh, I could do this in my life, go do it. Mm -hmm. Don't do this. And that goes for anything. You should always do what you truly want yeah, to do. but most people don't. Most people, certainly in this country, and I would venture to say around the world, they do not spend their days doing what they love to do. They live a life of just a long, painful regret, mm. not pursuing something they really wanted to do. You know what's crazy? Every year, I probably get maybe two or three. They could be lawyers. They could be doctors. They could be pharmacists. People that went and pursued their academic degree because their parents told them they had to, you're not going to be a fucking actor, I'm not paying for you to go study acting, you're going to mm -hmm. get a degree, and they spend the first 10, 15 years of their adult life miserable, mm -hmm. and they'll come to me, and they're turning 40, and they're like, I've spent my whole life unhappy, not doing what I want to do, and I'm done, I wanna, I, I, I've always wanted to be an actor, and I don't want to, you know, look back at my life and go, well, I never took that chance, right. but see, most people, they never do what they want to do in life. Through the circumstances, getting married, having kids too young, or this idea of what they think they want their life to be. Sure. So to really kind of say, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm going to pursue it, you know, I mean, I, I think it takes some balls, man, you know what I mean? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not an easy life. No. You know? And but it's a true it, life though, right? It's when you die someday, or your last, sure. your last I guess I would ask if this sounds like you. Have you been wanting for however long to be an artist? 
or an actor? Well, neither Charlie or Maggie pull any punches. They're not interested in winning a popularity contest. These are real people with a full range of human emotion teaching students to tap into themselves and find out who they are. I have to say, from visiting the studio, the energy of action is all over this place. Everyone is prepared. Everyone is passionate. Everyone gives a shit. The truth will always be the truth. There's only so long that we can run from it, both in this world and inside of ourselves. Running from the truth has an expiration date. That all chickens come home to roost eventually, right? Yeah. Listen, we're getting exactly what we asked for. Yes. Right. So, you know, this is what we wanted. This is what we got. Mm -hmm. The statement that you're making right now, that's larger than who is president and what's, how the government's being run. That's because society is a top-down and a bottom-up kind of thing, right? So if you and I are afraid to sit here and hold the space for each other, and a lot of men are, mm -hmm. which I was walking along, mm -hmm. I live near Shore Road, it's called, in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And I was walking a couple of months ago, it was a nice sunny day, and, and I was looking at two men. One was facing this way, and one was facing the opposite way, and they were talking, and neither was making eye contact. One had his hands in his pockets, there was a lot of shoulder shrugging, and I was looking at these two men thinking, and they were older, you know, in their 50s or 60s, and I was saying to myself, well, that's the problem with male communication right there. They're afraid to look at each other as if, if I look at you, I'm going to drop down and suck your dick instantly. Yeah, man. Like, you know what's I'm so, not a gay man. Do you know what's fucking crazy about that? It's something that's very simple, like eye contact, right? Mm -hmm. Like to be present with somebody. Sure. When I begin teaching in Meisner's work, the first thing that you have to be able to be comfortable with is standing across from another human being and taking them in. Mm-hmm. Because there's no lying when you look at someone's eyes. It freaks people the fuck out. Mm -hmm. They Because we're so rarely in contact with anybody now. But like to truly just be present, there's an intimacy to that. And to just stand in front of someone, really present, really take in, is unnerving. Mm -hmm. Most people, we, we just don't do that. I mean, with our intimate relationships we do. But sure. Not in life. And so, you know, that's kind of a thing in terms of to bring it back a little bit to, to acting training, you know, is to kind of strip away basically all of these defenses mm. that have been kind of built up through parenting, through socialization, through education, right? Mm -hmm. They fuck us up in all these different ways, but they build up these walls. And that's but, where the quiet desperation comes in, right? Yeah. Because it's in human desire. You want to connect with others. That's right. why we're here. Right. And so in terms of acting training, the work, Meisner's work has to do with kind of chiseling away all of those defenses so that you have a very open, very vulnerable instrument mm -hmm. where you're able to be played upon and changed and be able to work and respond personally for how you feel. But, you know, in life, we don't function from our rage. We're not comfortable with conflict. Very rarely do we feel comfortable standing up for ourselves. Do we, uh, nor do we feel comfortable expressing our heartbreak, our joy, our silliness, right? But for an actor, you've got to be comfortable accessing all sides of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the students here, when, when, they're, when they're training, are put up against that. As an actor, would you have to live through 20 takes during a day, or would you have to do eight shows a week? What you live through? Most people maybe experience four or five times in their life, mm. right? The triumphs, the tragedies, the griefs, the fears, you know, the terrors. You gotta have a hell of an instrument. And you also have to have the insight, empathetic connection.
to the earth itself to the earth towards the human to, to human suffering Mm-hmm. You know, and a, a very open instrument. Because so, that's real. That actually yeah, happens. There yeah. are people dying right now right. as you and I are having this conversation. Yeah. I tell students, listen, you got to have two things. You want to be a really good actor. You need to have, an, an artist, I think. You need to have intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. And you need empathy towards human suffering. Mm-hmm. Because that's all there is, you know, to varying degrees, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. we suffer like so minutely it's imperceptible and life is great. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, I mean, there are people that suffer on this earth in ways that we can't even imagine, mm-hmm. can't even comprehend. And all because they were just born in a place. Right, that's right. And we just happen to be born in America. Right, and so for an actor, if you're lucky enough, you'll have the opportunity to illuminate that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in a script. Sure. Do you know what I mean? And so for an artist, for an actor that's an artist, how many shoes can you fill? Mm-hmm. Like how many different And the answer is parts all of them. Universe? Well, a good, right. act, a good actor wants to be able to say that. Do you right. know what I mean? But you can't act on everything, you know? Because there's some things that just you can't relate to, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you want to be able to step into as many as you can. Mm-hmm. If you want to be really good. The Maggie Flanagan Studio is located at 153 West 27th Street, Suite 803. You can find the studio on the web at maggieflanaganstudio.com. That's M-A-G-G-I-E-F-L-A-N-I-G-A-N studio.com. Their phone number, 917-789-1599. They just began their six-week Meisner summer initiative, but to apply for fall admission, please call the studio number that I just mentioned, and you'll be able to schedule an interview when doing so. The studio's email address is info at maggieflanaganstudio.com. As I mentioned on the open, if you've gotten this podcast via thewallbreakers.com or some other web means and would like to subscribe, you can do so on iTunes by searching for Breaking Walls, and you can do so on SoundCloud at The Wallbreakers. The Wallbreakers Unity t-shirt line is available at jamesthewallbreaker.com shop or thewallbreakers.com shop. Today's loan music credit belongs to Steve Urquiaga for his guitar rendition of The Pavane, a procession dance first comment in 16th century Renaissance Venice. Our intro music is Cesar Frank's Symphony in D Minor, Part 3, The Finale. Our outro music will be Modest Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition, Promenade Number 1. The next time you will hear from me will be Breaking Walls Episode Number 60. I'll be presenting that on July 1st in honor of the upcoming 241st anniversary of the American Independence Day. For this episode, I'll be presenting a history of the golden age of radio on the air on the 4th of July. And to be honest, I think it's a good time to remember that part of what makes America so wonderful is our ability to be vulnerable, our choice in questioning the status quo, and our undying hope for progress. If there's anything I can do to help you in life, I'd be proud to try to hold that space for you. Please don't hesitate to reach out to me. My email, james at thewallbreakers.com. I would like to thank you for tuning in today. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode number 59, and until July 1st, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.
This is WBBN, the Wallbreakers Broadcasting Network. Thank you, and good afternoon.